welcome to Aerial Talk Time. I'm Victoria Lynn Wesson, and I am your host. If you would, would you mind going over and writing a review about our interview? Because I promise you, you're going to absolutely love my guest today. And if you don't mind also, could you give us five stars? I'd really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Before we get to my guest, I want to talk to you a little bit about Amazon Echo Alexa skills. If you haven't already, I invite you to enable Aerial Feng Shui and Aerial News Flash. And every day you can say, Alexa, open Feng Shui and get a, a daily Feng Shui tip. And it's really amazing. They're inspirational, they're fun, and they're also very practical. If you enable the Aerial News Flash, you'll hear all sorts of interesting news about Aerial articles, podcasts, its members, as well as we feature a podcast at the end of each episode, which is fun and exciting. Now, if you don't have your own Amazon Alexa skill, I invite you to hook up with our partner, Studio Carlton. They produced all the Alexa skills that we have for Ariel, and they do an outstanding work. And I say that Ariel Newsflash, or excuse me, Alexa Newsflash is actually going to replace our conventional standard newsletter. People don't read those things anyway. So if you have your audience, your people, if you will, enable your own custom newsflash, you can tell them all about, you know, the news of your company articles, interviews, and even as well feature a podcast. I highly recommend you doing that because after all, we are in the age of voice. Next up is my guest. I actually went into my archives of interviews. A few years ago, I did a series on the intuitive factor, genius or chance, and I took the interviews from there and I created Intuition 101 audio series. From there, I decided to create a new podcast with it because the conversations were so rich and so inspiring and thought-provoking. And my first interview that we're going to talk about is with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlov. Well, Jeffrey Mishlov was the first, and I believe probably remains the first and only person to receive a degree in parapsychology from an accredited university. And that's quite outstanding. Jeffrey Mishlov is the author of Roots of Consciousness, and that was written obviously several years ago, but it's, if you can get your hands on a copy or an electronic version, I highly recommend you look at that if you're interested in, you know, parapsychology, metaphysics, and so on. And of course, you know, he's also the host of the popular PBS series, Thinking Aloud. Now, I know there's those series on Amazon. You can purchase them. You can also watch them on YouTube. They are just incredible. The guests that he interviewed and the wealth of knowledge that you gain from that are just, it goes on forever. But anyway, I, I digress, and I want you to enjoy our conversation. It's about intuition. And again, it's Jeffrey Mishlow, parapsychologist and the author of Roots of Consciousness and the host of Thinking Aloud. Welcome to the audio presentation of The Intuitive Factor, Genius or Chance, brought to you by Zoe Films. Hello, I'm Victoria Lynn Weston, producer and director. Intuition One-on-One -on -one is a series of revealing conversations that explores the intuitive faculty. What is intuition? Who has it? Where does it come from? Can we develop our intuitive abilities? I'd like to introduce to you the only person to receive a diploma in parapsychology from the University of California at Berkeley in 1980. This degree remains the only doctoral diploma in parapsychology ever awarded by an accredited American university. He is also the author of the most comprehensive book on Psy Research, 
Roots of Consciousness, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. My first question, Jeffrey, is what inspired you to write The Roots of Consciousness and why? Oh, The Roots of Consciousness. I wrote while I was a graduate student at Berkeley back in 1975, you know, a good five years before I even completed my doctoral degree. And I, I was at a point in my life where I had to pass the, what's called the qualifying exam. I had a committee of, of independent scholars at Berkeley who had to sit in judgment of me as to whether I knew anything about the field of parapsychology. And of course, none of them were professors of parapsychology. There were psychologists, a philosopher, a, an engineer who was a UFO researcher, a statistician, a business professor. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll write an overview of the whole field. And I'll submit that as sort of part of my qualifying exam for my professors. And at the same time, actually, I needed money. So I sent a letter off to a publisher and proposed the book. And three days later, I had a contract <laughs> virtually. So I, I sat down and, and wrote the book while I was still in my mid-20s. And it was, it was my effort to sort of put on paper everything about the psychic and metaphysical world I had learned at that point. What is intuition? Intuition is knowing without knowing how you know. Uh, you might even say knowing something you shouldn't know without knowing how you know. That's the general definition. It kind of includes everything. Uh, some people would say, oh, your mind is a computer and it's subliminally computing things. That, that's the conventional uh, artificial intelligence or cognitive science view of intuition. Other people would say it's the deep wisdom of the soul coming through. And frankly, I lean in that direction. Some people call it gut instinct. Some people say that it's, it's your moral compass. Other people would say that intuition is subliminal computation. Other people say it is the wisdom of the soul. Some people say it's extrasensory perception. Some people say it's, it's a creative inspiration. Other people would say it's a good sense of timing. Uh, I try to think of intuition as including all of these. It's, it's our way of knowing things directly without being mediated by the senses or by logic. It's, it's how the mind touches the universe. Intuition is the umbrella term that parapsychologists define as ESP, mental telepathy, precognition and clairvoyance, and that most of us are using two or three skills simultaneously. But of course, we need that one element, intuition, to sort of understand and interpret all of these other feelings. That's a very good definition of intuition. I hadn't heard that one uh, before. It's, I always learn new things <laughs> about it. But I think of intuition as an umbrella term that includes ESP. That ESP, ESP, telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, those are subcategories to me of intuition. And reading another person's soul or their spirit or getting a creative inspiration or, or other subcategories, even subliminal computation could be a subcategory of intuition. It's a very large field. And in a sense, it's not at all controversial. Everybody acknowledges that, that there is intuition, but almost everybody has a different idea as to what intuition is. So who is intuitive? Doctors, lawyers, teachers? My parents? Everybody is intuitive by virtue of being alive, by virtue of being a human being, by having a brain, by being a conscious entity. Consciousness itself is intuition. 
Are there various degrees or levels of intuition, and can people be trained to sort of exercise their intuitive abilities, sort of heighten that sensitivity, that awareness of intuition? Well, I, I think you could consider intuition to be similar to athletic ability or intellectual ability or artistic ability, that some people are born with more of it than others, and almost everybody can improve their skill by paying attention to it and, and cultivating it. Where does intuition come from? If you were to ask me the bottom line about intuition, I would, I would agree with the ancient primordial tradition of the mystics who say that we are all one with everything. That's where it comes from. What is the difference between psychic ability and intuition? I'm not sure there is a clear-cut difference, although there are other people who in, say that there is. Some people would tell you this. They would say that intuition has to have an, an ethical, a moral component. It has to represent the voice of higher wisdom, and psychic ability does not always do that. It could be just knowing information, sometimes to the detriment of people, whereas true inf intuition should, should be beneficial to everybody. And I don't disagree with that in that, that kind of a perspective. I, I do think that intuition is associated with higher wisdom, the, the higher potentials of the mind. On the other hand, I do think that psychic ability comes from very much the same place as intuition when I talk about the interconnectedness of everything. What role does intuition play in remote viewing, which is what I call clairvoyance? Well, I consider remote viewing, which is another scientific term for clairvoyance, and sometimes associated even with out-of-body experience. In any case, it's the modern scientific term for these things. I think of that as a subcategory of intuition, and it's especially important these days because it's measurable, because we, we have over 20 years of good scientific data for it. In a sense, I think of remote viewing as, as a paradigm for intuition in the world at large. It's something that we can integrate into our scientific laboratories, into our businesses. Uh, if somebody tells you that they have this ability, you can test it. You can check it. You can know very quickly whether or not it's a valid claim. By uh, asking them, for example, to, to describe an object that you have hidden in a box. It's that simple. Well, that's interesting, Jeffrey. So if I tell you how many coins you have in your pocket right now, that means I'm demonstrating remote viewing? It could be a demonstration of that if you're not performing a magic trick. Intuition, to me, has always been the walkie-talkie between consciousness and the soul. Do you agree with that? That's a perfectly good definition as, as far as I'm concerned. But, but I think I would go a little further because... It's also, the, you could say, the walkie-talkie between consciousness and the world at large. It goes both ways, I think. In, in fact, it's the basis of consciousness. I would, I would say that what we are conscious of emerges from intuition. Whether, whether I'm conscious of you as a human being here or conscious of myself externally, my body, or conscious of my own inner thoughts. Tell me how intuition relates to our spiritual awareness. You know, the phrase that comes to my mind, first of all, in thinking about spirituality and, and trying to grasp it in a modern context, the phrase that comes to my mind is hyperspace. I think we live in a universe that has more than three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, and that these other dimensions are, you could say they are dream worlds, or they are spiritual worlds, heavens and hells, and many different worlds in between. Uh, they're part of our consciousness. 
When we go into altered states of consciousness, I believe we access these realms of hyperspace and that in the future we'll be able to map them out, actually, mathematically. We'll probably, just as we have television in our age, in future ages, we will have devices that will enable us to communicate with these other realms of existence. They will be the spiritual realms, will be the equivalent for us of, of what the new continents were in the time of the Renaissance whole new regions of exploration. Okay, Jeffrey, let's look at the people. They suddenly become aware of their intuitive abilities, like myself, and I suddenly have this access to, you know, a wealth of information. How do I handle it? What do I do with all this information? I think that's the fundamental question that anybody can ask of themselves, and it's an intuitional question. You can't answer that question without intuition. What is my purpose in life? Why am I here? What is my destiny? What, what is the highest that I can accomplish for myself and in my life? There's no way you're going to get a rational answer or there, there's no way that any other social institution can really, at a deep level, define that for you. So use your intuition to, to bring you to the next stage. Is intuition always accurate? That's a big controversy. There are those who say that if it's not accurate, it wasn't a true intuition. Uh, it, that's kind of a metaphysical perspective. You can postulate that intuition is always accurate. On the other hand, in, in the real world, we're all human. Nobody is, is always accurate. And whenever we work with highly intuitive people, let's say in the laboratory, I find that the best of them hit maybe a 70, 80, sometimes 90 percent level of accuracy. So uh, in that sense, it's not always accurate. But you, you could come, turn around and say, well, then the, when it wasn't accurate, it wasn't intuition. So in, in a way, we play with words, and intuition is just such a word. We have the existential power to define it in, in the way that's most meaningful and suitable for us. How do we know we know? Right, it's an infinite regress. How do we know we know we know? And then you say, well, how do we know we know we know? <laughs> how do we know we know we know we know? <laughs> you, could, you could keep taking it back forever, but it has to do with the difference between apprehension and comprehension. Logically, we comprehend things, but with intuition, we apprehend things. It's like when you hold your hand up and catch a ball in your hand. You catch it. And then you, you feel it. There's a, a kind of a sensation that, like you've caught it, and you know that way. The same would apply to intuition. Yeah. You just know. You know. And, and you see, you can't say how we know we know because inf intuition, by its definition, is knowing without knowing how you know. If you knew how it was you, kn you know, then it's probably not intuition. Let's say I'm just learning and discovering my intuitive abilities. What can I do to, to enhance it? Practice. You can practice by having deep conversations with your friends about these matters. In the Intuition Network, we have one fundamental principle that we think helps people to cultivate their intuition across all levels of society and all ages and sexes. And it's very simple. Get together in a small group with people who have the same interest and share with each other what you're learning about intuition. Everybody is an expert in one aspect of intuition or another. Some people will tell you how their dreams guided them. Other people have practiced different disciplines, yoga or meditation or many forms of psychotherapy or biofeedback or the martial arts or 
art or, 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 or music, there are hundreds of avenues into the world of intuition. And people who are dedicated to opening up in that direction will all grow by sharing with each other what they've learned. Let's say, Jeffrey, I work in the corporate world, and I've just come up with this intuitive inspiration, and I'm really enthused about it, and I want to present it to my superiors and that, but how do I take this intuitive information and dress it up in data clothes, if you will, to make it acceptable to the corporate guys, the CEOs, the presidents? Well, I think it's important to balance intuition with the factual, logical side of the mind. That's one of the reasons that we support and are engaged in research. And you may be able to say, tell them, well, I don't have any data to support what I'm telling you directly. It's an intuition. But I can tell you there's lots of background data that shows that intuition is very effective in decision making. There's data that shows that people can obtain information even though they don't have sensory clues or logical clues as to what that information is. For instance, the... Um I know presidents and CEOs that have to uh, make a, a quick decision, and they've got all the facts and, and, and the data and, and so on, and in the end, they're always basing it on intuition. Well, there are some cases in which you have to use intuition more than others. If, if you have all the time in the world to gather all the facts that are available, and those facts are conveniently available to you, maybe you don't have to rely on intuition, except, as, as you're saying, that underlying every premise is, is an intuitive postulate. So even then you can't avoid intuition. And in, and in my opinion, the truth is we use intuition every second of every day of our lives. I'm using intuition now to speak to you. I don't even think logically what word is going to come out of my mouth next. And you use intuition to hear those words, even though I'm speaking very, very quickly and there's not even a pause between some of the words. In your brain, you can tell that there's a sentence, that there's meaning. It's almost as if we're communicating telepathically and the words are just like pointers to something deeper than the words themselves. Let's talk briefly about intuition on a global level. How do various countries and, and cultures um, take intuition and integrate it into their personal and professional lives? The fact of the matter is that every culture has its own unique paths into intuition, and probably the least intuitive of all cultures is the modern, scientifically-oriented American culture. We pride ourselves on being modern rationalists, for the most part, although frankly, uh, demographic surveys show that that's even breaking down now. But if you go to Europe or to Asia or to South America or Africa, the, there's ancient cultures there that, it, where all of the people are constantly reminded of a time in the history of their culture when rationality was not dominant, when intuition in, in many of its modes was the dominant cultural form. We don't have that so much in America because our country was founded in the age of, of enlightenment, in the age of rationality. But even then, if, if you look at the dollar bill, say the reverse of the great seal, the eye and the triangle image, you can see that the founders, the very forefathers of our country were involved in Freemasonry and the Rosicrucian movement, and, and they had their own intuitive traditions. So they put the all-seeing eye, the eye and the triangle, in the dollar bill. When did you first become aware of your intuition? As a, as a young child, I was about 10 years old, and I can remember quite distinctly, I was actually sort of like sitting in my parents' bedroom, sitting on the bed, and I asked myself the question, why am I me? I looked here at my body and these hands and this, this body, and, and I noticed outside there are hundreds of other people, thousands walking around, and I, 
I said, why am I me and not someone else? How did that happen? And it, that question began to take me very deeply into myself. And I made contact then with, with a part of myself, a real curious part, a part that could kind of go deeper and reach out further. And ever since then, I've had a, a, a curiosity uh, about, about the mind itself and uh, you know, a, a curiosity that caused me to question and, and try to break through the, the kind of cultural slumber which you can have when you grow up in the Midwest where you just assume this is the way it is and you don't ask questions. Give me an, an intuitive experience that changed your life. I, I've had a number of intuitive experiences that really dramatically changed my life. One of them was this. I had a dream one evening, quite unexpectedly, about my great-uncle of mine, my great-uncle Harry, who I hadn't seen in over 10 years or more, hadn't thought about Uncle Harry at all since I was a child. But I was a college student, and Uncle Harry came to me in the dream. And he began speaking to me in, in symbolism, using the Chinese yin-yang, which was funny, because he was an old Jewish man, the, the, the head of the Orthodox Jewish synagogue in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And then something touched me very deeply. It was as if Uncle Harry was there speaking to me, really, about my life. And I woke up from the dream and I was crying. I'd never done that before. And singing at the same time. I was crying and singing an old Jewish melody. I felt so touched by him. And so I wrote home and I said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. And three days later, when my mother got the letter, she called me up immediately and she said, how did you know? Uncle Harry just died. And, you know, I, the whole family was stunned that, that I would have had a dream like that and mentioned him. And, and so that began me. That, that, that was that experience that pushed me into the search. I needed to find out the meaning of experiences like this. And um, I subsequently learned a lot of things, not only about my Uncle Harry, but about that whole realm of experience. Can people just turn on their intuition or are we always intuitive and just not paying attention to it? Well, there are different levels. You know, the, the, we use intuition as a blanket word, but it covers undoubtedly dozens and dozens of different levels of, of functioning and, and subtleties of mental functioning. At one level, we're using it all the time anyway, but at other levels, we can open it up and all it really takes, in my estimation, is an act of attention. It's just to say to myself, okay, now I will focus on this inwardly. For example, in remote viewing, I may have a person who, let's say, has an object hiding in a box. And if I want to see inside of that box, I relax, I sort of gather in my focus, my intelligence, my awareness, and I say, okay, let me close my eye now, my eyes now, and then not actively, not pushing or concentrating, but kind of passively, gently, let my consciousness go to the level where I am one with or I have access to what is in the box. Tell me about intuition and the soul. 
It's my understanding that intuition really is our soul. Do you agree with that? You know, I meant, talked about hyperspace earlier, and I think that the realm of hyperspace, higher dimensional space, is also the realm of the soul. Normally, when we're engaged in our bodily activities, we are looking out through our eyes and hearing out through our ears, and, and so we our attention is to some degree trapped in a three-dimensional, five-sensory world. We're not always aware of the many dimensions of the soul. But when we relax a little bit, when, if we direct our attention there, it can be just as clear to us as, as the external world is. Do you know, Jeffrey, anything about intuition and the brain? I know that it's the corpus callosum, that little bundle of nerves that connects the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, and interestingly, tends to be larger in women than in men, and that's why some scientists say women tend to be more intuitive than men. I know that there are many different theories about intuition in the brain, and, and I have to say at this stage they have to be at the level of hypotheses. None of these theories has yet been demonstrated, but some of the theories would be that when you're in an alpha state, when your mind is giving out brainwave signals in the seven to ten cycles a second range, that that's more optimal for intuition. Other people would say, yes, the corpus callosum, which is the part of the brain that unites the two hemispheres, when you're centered, when your consciousness is kind of balanced between your right hemisphere and your left hemisphere, that's optimal for intuition. Uh, there are many other suggestions, uh, but I don't think we yet have a definitive answer about the relationship between intuition and the brain, except to say that from my point of view, I would say that intuition is larger than the brain itself. There are those who say that intuition comes out of the brain, that, that consciousness comes out of the brain, just as uh, you, you might say breathing comes out of the lungs. Uh, I would say it's a little different. I, there's another view, and I think we have to take it seriously, which is that the brain emerges from consciousness. The consciousness is larger than the brain. Does intuition allow us to see into the future? Well, I don't think there are any boundaries to intuition in time or in space, or you might even say in the, within the soul there is no boundary. And certainly in the field of psychic research, which is one of my areas of specialty, there's a large body of data, hundreds of experiments in what we call precognition. I've engaged in them often and have come up with very clear-cut data that show that if I want to direct my attention to a future activity, something that has not yet occurred, in, in which nobody alive today knows for certain what will happen, that I can get images and pictures of, of that event with a, a far greater degree of consistency, accuracy, reliability than one would expect by chance. So you could say, statistically speaking, we, we are caught in a flow of information from the future just as much as we have memory from the past. Can anybody go into the future like that? Well, some people have a better talent for it than other people. And for people at large, most of us are hampered above all by our self-image. We have an image of ourselves that says, oh, I could never do that. And so we don't. It doesn't occur to us to try things that are impossible to do. It's like, you know, before Christopher Columbus, whoever thought of sailing the Atlantic. Now it's commonplace. And, and so it is with intuition. It's a whole new continent. And right now there are a few pioneers who are going over and coming back and expeditions and intuition networks and organizations like that. But the day will come when the continent is well populated and well settled.
What circumstances can affect the intuitive faculty? Well, in my opinion, if, to the extent that you live your life optimally, you will enhance your intuition. When you respect your body, when you have a, a balanced lifestyle of diet and exercise and relaxation, when you have loving relationships, when you optimize your own potentials in many different ways, intellectually and in being aware of the world at large, and particularly of being compassionate. You know, we, we live in a world where there's a lot of suffering, and often to protect ourselves from the pain of the world, we, we build a kind of uh, shell around ourselves. We don't want to know certain things. We don't want to see certain things. And in that sense, we wall ourselves off from, from our compassion. And in so doing, we wall ourselves off from our own higher potentials as well, from our intuition. How far into antiquity does intuition go or extend? All the way. <laughs> All the way to the Big Bang. <laughs> what great minds, Jeffrey, like Einstein and Huxley, do you sort of look up to about their intuition and, and, and what they sort of discovered? There isn't a great leader around who wasn't a highly intuitive person frankly. Even some of the, those who were the great evil geniuses of, of history were highly intuitive. It, it goes with the territory. If you're going to accomplish something, uh, your intuition will be involved. Uh, I have my own personal heroes. I think Gandhi was, was a great intuitive. I, I'm very fond of uh, an obscure but, but great individual, the ancient Roman philosopher Seneca was one of my heroes, who's a, a highly intuitive person. In my own television work on the Thinking Aloud TV show, um, I had occasion to interview Marty Rossman, who's a mental, medical doctor, who wrote a book called Healing Yourself with Mental Imagery. And he demonstrated this principle by putting me into a hypnotic trance. And, and we captured the whole thing on videotape, just like this, as part of our inner work series. So he put me into a hypnotic state, and he said, now, I want you to get in touch with your inner healing advisor. And I got the mental image of a man wearing a toga. And I asked him, under in the trance state, I asked him who he was. And he said, well, my name is Seneca. And I thought to myself, oh, who's Seneca? How boring. Go away. I want Demosthenes, the great Greek orator. I, I could really use some help with my public speaking. And he said, no, I'm not Demosthenes. I'm Seneca. So I said to him, well, what, what do you want? Since you're Seneca, what, what can we do together? And he said to me, study my life. And then I came out of the hypnotic trance state, and it's all, as I say, on our videotape, and I was stunned. I felt like I had really contacted this speaker, this, this ancient Roman, who I barely knew anything about. And, and then I began studying his life, and I learned the most extraordinary things. I think of him as one of the hidden masters of human history. He was a statesman. He literally ran the Roman Empire for five years, and it was called the Silver Age of Rome. It was one of the five best years of, of Roman management. But he was a playwright. He was a philosopher. He was a, a, a great spiritual teacher and a humanist, and he wrote about health and healing, and he wrote about science. He, he was considered the leading intellect of his day, and his life knew the, the greatest highs and also the greatest lows. He was at one time exiled onto a lonely island, and uh, throughout it all, his writings pushed 
the, the level of intuition, especially at that day and age. And Seneca lived in an age which is actually very much like our own. He lived at, you know, in the age of Christ, actually, right after uh, the age of Christ. And it was in a materialistic age, by, primarily in the Roman Empire. They, they were very sophisticated people, and many, many writers have compared that era to our own. And yet he developed a spiritual humanistic philosophy in which he suggested that there was something he called providence, something a, a great spirit that encompassed everything, and that the goal of philosophy, the goal of life, was to become one with that sense of providence, that sense of spirit, which meant accepting what happened to you. That's the, the stoic part of it. Bad things will happen. Bad things do happen. Uh, but we can learn to live within that context and understand that there's something deeper than the events that occur in our life. And he called that, in, in Latin, it would be the equivalent of virtue. If we can get in touch with that which is virtuous within ourselves, that's timeless, that's eternal. And when we are in touch with our own essence or virtue, then nothing that happens, even the worst tyrant or dictator or plague or fire, nothing can really touch us in a harmful way. Describe to me the intuitive personality. Well, there is a concept called the intuitive personality that was developed by Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychiatrist. And he, he really had four basic personality types, the thinking type, the feeling type, the sensation type, and the intuitive type. You could think of them, if you were to think of them in terms of animals, you've got the owl, the lion, the uh, dolphin, and the eagle. And of course, the intuitive type is the uh, dolphin. And that's a person, and of course, Jung would even go further. He'd say, well, you have introverted intuitives and extroverted intuitives. But basically, from a personality perspective, a Jungian perspective, an intuitive person is oriented towards the future. They are able to sense trends before they occur. The intuitive person is very creative and imaginative and not particularly well-grounded in uh, the practicalities of life. So uh, many intuitive consultants who work with the Intuition Network will go into a business and run personality tests on the people and then make recommendations to management with regard to the highly intuitive people that they be assigned to particular projects. If you need a creative breakthrough, put the intuitives to work on that and also protect them from some of the other personality types who are likely to debunk and scoff and not give them the space that they need to be intuitive. So what is Carl Jung's interpretation of intuition? Well, Jung had a lot to say about intuition. He's really one of the great geniuses of the 20th century, and he talked about the notion of the collective unconscious, that in our unconscious mind, in our dreaming mind, we share this with all of humanity, and in a sense, the deep wisdom, the mythological wisdom of all of humanity is found in our dreams. He also talked about the concept of synchronicity, which is becoming a very popular principle these days. And uh, synchronicity, or meaningful events that occur 
that are not related by any normal causal connection, but are guided, you might say, by some sort of uh, spirit, flow of the universe itself, that, that this is the way intuition expresses itself. It's the expression of our psyche, which is really uh, the Greek word for our soul. So uh, Jung, furthermore, Jung was a deep student of spiritualism as well. When you look at Jungian psychology, it's, it's sort of a mainstream psychology today, but its roots are much, uh, are, are, you might say this, Jung had one foot just as firmly planted in the mystical, spiritual tradition of humanity as he did in the scientific tradition. So he, he's a great resource for people in the field of psychiatry and psychology who want to understand intuition. Is spiritual intuition all-encompassing, or is it an individual sort of do what feels right to you at that moment? Well, you know, when you put it that way, like do your thing, do what feels <laughs> good, uh, we often, that often becomes a, uh, a kind of jargon that people use in our culture for a kind of permissiveness, for a kind of undisciplined way of being. And yet I think a highly intuitive person is also highly disciplined. It's not just do your thing or do what feels right or feels good. It's go for the passion. Go for, for something you're willing to commit your life to. And that involves not only great, great joy, but it, it involves a, a very serious level of, of commitment that, that, to me, is intu intuition. Otherwise, you become kind of a dilettante. You, be, you, you, know, you, you can be on the surface of life, and intuition is, is not just riding on the surface of life. Do you know Jeffrey Lyle Watson of Lifetime magazine said, every child up until the age of five knows everything about intuition, and then we send them to school, and, and then the rot begins to set in. So tell me, how can we use intuition to effectively communicate with our children, to encourage them to listen to their intuition, to develop it? I would say the key is to listen to our children more. That's, that's the way to effectively communicate with them. And intuition, above all, is listening. Uh, one person in our network quoted Wayne Dyer, who, who said that uh, intuition is just the opposite of prayer. In prayer, we talk to God, and intuition, we listen. And the same is true with ourselves and with our children. Intuition is hearing that still, small voice that can often be crowded out by the other noisy thoughts that go on in our head. But when we're quiet within, we can really sense our children or, or our friends or any other person and it, it's at a deeper level than just the words that they say. It's at a level of uh, you know, the passions and the longings and the yearnings of, of their heart. Is there any biological factors behind intuition? And is there, is there really a gender difference? Are women more intuitive than men? I don't really think there's a gender difference in intuition. I think males and females are equally intuitive. But there are social differences. Females are, for example, uh, raised to be much more conversant in the realm of the emotions. And so certain kinds of intuition that are associated with the emotions come much more naturally to females. And also, one finds that the Western intellectual mindset, the mindset that denies intuition, is strongest amongst males who tend to have positions of authority in, in the academic world, in the corporate world. And those cultures are cultures that tend to suppress intuition. Whereas women, along with minorities of all kinds, who are excluded from 
mainstream Western cultural institutions have the advantage, therefore, of having more access to the intuitive realm. And uh, so we have a lot to learn from uh, people who are culturally disenfranchised. You know, what, what, what our culture denies them be, because of the stereotypes and prejudices of our culture at large is in some ways a gift to them, and, and we can all benefit from that, just as with handicapped people. Handicapped people are, one might say, underprivileged in our culture. Wheel, people in wheelchairs don't even have access to many buildings and streets, but they develop ways of compensating. And, and most handicapped people that I run into are highly intuitive people. And you know where it starts? It starts with a sense of compassion. They have compassion for their own pain and suffering, and consequently compassion for the pain and suffering of others. And, and probably nothing opens up intuition more than that sense of compassion. And unfortunately, our culture is, tends to develop almost the opposite of compassion, a kind of a numbness, a kind of a, I'll mind my business and, and meet my goals and take care of my family, and I don't want to know too much about the homeless. I don't want to know too much about the people who don't have enough to eat or who don't have adequate medical care. It's, it's like more, it's too overwhelming, or it's none of my business, or I don't want to get used uh, by these people or hit on by these people. So we, we wall ourselves off, and in, in so doing, we lose touch with our basic humanity, and, and our intuition is certainly a part of our basic humanity. I would go even further. I would say that a person who is highly intuitive can do nothing other than that which is going to be helpful to the world at large. An intuitive person is a person who feels the pain of others and is motivated to contribute in some way to the world to ease that pain. I have an interesting question, Jeffrey. Does intuition affect brain waves or is it brain waves that affect and stimulate intuition? Well, the bottom line from my perspective is, is that the brain is a tool of consciousness, a tool of intuition, and that intuitive people will function in any brain wave state, even in a stressed out state, even a highly a state of illness it can sometimes, in fact, often triggers certain kinds of intuitive states of awareness. So the brain is, is like the radio receiver of consciousness. It's, it's not consciousness itself. How about the emotional and the physical state? How does that influence intuition? If we're looking faced with impending danger, for instance, a car accident, we certainly aren't going to think about the logical path. We're going to be compelled to think about our intuition. Do you agree? And there are many, many examples of, of people who use intuition in life-saving circumstances, and it, it does save their lives. So I would agree with you there. Tell me what skeptics say. Jeffrey, do you convince these skeptics that intuition is, is, is superior to logical thinking? Well, you know, I don't really try and pay a lot of attention to skeptics, but, but let me say this. I think there are two kinds of skeptics. There, there are the skeptics on the left, the rationalist, materialist skeptics, and they say, oh, there's nothing to it. It's all subliminal computation, or it's flim-flam, or it's chicanery, or fraud, or, or careless thinking on the one hand, that you know, rationality is the highest human function, and that's that. And then you have the skeptics on the right, 
who basically are, are your fundamentalist religious types of people, and they say, well, intuition is you're not obeying the authority of the church, or intuition is the work of the devil. It exists, it's real, but it's evil in some sense, because it, it doesn't come under you know, the, the kind of authority that we believe it should, the Bible, or the Koran, or uh, the Torah, or, or, or something of that sort. Intuitive people are generally the kind of people who make both the rationalists and the extreme traditionalists very nervous. Intuition is, you, you might say this, the, the rationalists, I think of them as people who are oriented very much to the present, to the here and now, to business, to science. The traditionalists are oriented towards the world of the past, and people who are intuitive are oriented towards the future. And it makes the skeptics both uh, of both of these camps nervous to think about the future because they're not prepared for the future. On the simple dichotomy of intuition and rationality, psychologist Philip Goldberg says that children tend to be more intuitive than adults. Yes, and intuition hasn't been drummed out of them the way our culture does to, to many adults. And there's a certain amount of research in the field of psychic research that suggests that young children about the age of four score very highly and then the older they get each year after that their scores will drop on tests of extrasensory perception until about the age of 11 when their score is as good or bad as the average adult. Uh, I don't know for sure how much to trust that research but the folklore is just enormous to suggest that children are closer to the realm of spirit from which they emerged and just as very old people are as they prepare for death and that those of us who are in the middle phases of life often get locked into this five sensory rationalist materialist worldview that leaves very very little room for intuition. Do you think it's time that we started integrating intuitive classes, intuitive training for our, our adolescents in grade school? I think the key is for young children not to train them. They already have it. The key is to stop trying to beat it out of them, to just allow it to flourish in a, in a more natural way. Uh, I think when they get older than that, uh, there are various kinds of training grams that are appropriate. But there are many school systems, the Montessori school system or the Waldorf school system, that are very, very skilled at learning how to just stay with the flow of a child's natural intuitive feelings. And you see the children who go through these schools are, are quite remarkable people. How would you encourage a young child to understand or recognize their intuition, and how can you help them develop it? I think the most important thing is to listen to the child and not to invalidate or deny things that children say. In a way, even a child is an autonomous, sentient being, just like an adult. Their opinions are just as important to them as adult opinions are important to us. And we often have a way of um, controlling our children by instilling basically low self-esteem in them. We say, oh, you can't do this, or you're stupid, or stop uh, behaving that way. We, we belittle our children as a way of controlling them. And, and so they buy into that, being young and having some giant tell them, you know, you're, you're stupid, or what you say isn't important and doesn't count. But when children are treated with respect, I think their intuition flows naturally. Can we use our own intuition to enhance our health? Yeah, yeah, we, we can. First of all, we can use intuition to be aware of our bodies. 
aware of our present state of health so that if, if some little thing is starting to go wrong, if stress is building up, if there is an ulcer or a muscle tension or something, we catch it earlier because we're aware of ourselves. We can make modifications in our lifestyle to uh, help our health. But more than that, we can use visualization. We can use the more active aspects of the mind to help to heal ourselves. We can, pra we can all be healers of ourselves and of each other. And I mean by that mental and spiritual healers, by holding positive thoughts and directing positive healing intentions towards ourselves and towards others. And it's a very intuitive process to know how and when to do that. This is one of my favorites. What is the relationship between intuition and dreams? Freud said that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. And surely the in our intuitions come from our unconscious. You know, Freud also said many other interesting things. He said that we, in our civilized life, in our modern Western civilization in particular, we have certain aspects that are natural and normal to us that we repress, that we don't let into our consciousness. And he thought particularly our sexual drives, our aggressive drives. And then Jung went a step further and he said, yes, but also our mystical, our spiritual, our intuitive side, we repress that as well. And all of these things come out in our dreams. So there's an enormous literature of people who uh, get their great creative breakthroughs, their scientific breakthroughs, their insights in business come through their dreams. There's also many people today who meet in dream groups who are building a culture in which they're no longer afraid to acknowledge the, the unconscious, the aggressive, the sexual, and the spiritual side, and are willing to sit in small circles and talk about these things openly and freely. And I regard that as a very, very healthy development in our culture. Ah, here's one for you, Jeffrey. Can our emotions mislead our intuition? Yes. Emotions can mislead. In a way, we have, I, I think of it this way, we have the higher emotions and the, we have the lower emotions. And people say, well, the intellect should rule the emotions, but by that they mean the lower emotions, greed and fear and jealousy. It's better to be you know, calm and intellectual than to be angry or jealous or fearful. On the other hand, the higher emotions, I think, should rule the intellect. And the higher emotions are, are yearning for wholeness, are yearning to, for beauty, for truth, for goodness in our lives. These things uh, cannot be dominated by the intellect, but they have to lead and guide the intellect. And I think that the higher emotions are those which are most associated with intuition. Although many times in popular discourse and jargon, we think of the lower emotions as, as being intuitive. So today, for example, scientists will pride themselves on a counterintuitive discovery. That means one that goes against the common public opinion or, or common sense. Or people will say, well, <clears throat> it's a good thing I didn't listen to my intuitions because uh, what my intuition wanted me to do was go out and get drunk and have a good time or something. So uh, there is, a, 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 in popular discourse, a lot of confusion about what intuition really is and how it relates to the emotions. Tell me, Jeffrey, are there any experiments that you're currently working on right now? Share that with us. Okay, I'm engaged in remote viewing research. I've been involved in doing remote viewing for over 20 years when I first began doing my doctoral research at UC Berkeley. As I mentioned, remote viewing is the modern term for 
clairvoyance, for the ability to see objects at a distance, a distance in both time and space. We now know that this is an ability that's been utilized for the last 20 years by the uh, Defense Department and uh, with reportedly very good results. And in, in fact, this work has been analyzed statistically now, uh, it has very good results. I believe that remote viewing is the paradigm for intuition, which will find its way into our scientific institutions, into our business community. When you want to have a kind of practical intuition that can be measured, that can work in the world, that can give you uh, performance objectives and behavioral results, remote viewing, in my estimation, is the way to go. And it's been used in archaeology, it's been used in financial forecasting, uh, which is an area that we're researching. It has been used in uh, intuitive medical diagnosis, which is another area that we are researching. It's used uh, by intuitive consultants who work with businesses, uh, by intuitive consultants who work with law enforcement agencies, and uh, the results have been very satisfactory. I would say that today, right now, as, as we're sort of on the cusp of the new millennium, that the, uh, there's an industry that's emerging, and I would call it the remote viewing industry. And to me, it's like the automobile industry of 100 years ago when you had a number of uh, people tinkering around with, with horseless carriages in their workshops and their garages, or the computer industry of 50 years ago, again, where you had inventors working in their garages. Uh, and I would suspect that over the next 50 years, we will see remote viewing assume a role in our culture comparable, in fact, to, to what we have seen over the last 100 years with the automobile or over the last 50 years with the computer. And the reason I say that is because we now have 20 years of very good scientific evidence. And let me say one thing unequivocally, no matter what you hear skeptics say, and, and skeptics will typically say there isn't a shred of evidence. That's, that's the phrase they often use to dismiss it out of hand or with a horse laugh or to try and embarrass people who are working in this field. Anybody who delves into this seriously, who reads many of the uh, dozen or so books that have been published in the field, or who looks at some of the hundreds of scientific articles that have been published in this field now, will know that this is a very reliable, substantial field. And uh, those who stay in the skeptical camp, I'm afraid, are going to be left behind. Jeffrey, you are the, uh, the president and the director of the Intuition Network. I, I am the director of the Intuition Network and the president. What are your goals, Jeffrey? I mean, you talk about training people so, they, so that people can become aware of their intuitive abilities and developing those intuitive abilities and, of course, trusting those intuitive abilities. We, we have a large goal. Uh, our goal is, is almost like the goal of Buddhism. You know, the goal of Buddhism is the enlightenment of every sentient being. And our goal, well, it's a little more modest than that, our goal is to create a world where people feel supported and encouraged to use their intuitive abilities. And, and we reach out in every way that we can. We hold conferences, we have publications, we've been underwriting uh, television production of my Thinking Aloud series, we have a computer conference, uh, we have people who are always networking on the telephones, on the uh, faxes, and uh, in, in many other ways. So uh, we're reaching out as, as much as we can for a small organization. 
One of my favorite quotes, Jeffrey, is Albert Einstein, who quotes, the really valuable thing is intuition. My personal sense is that some of the negative people, and even some of the skeptics would fit in here, but look at the thieves and, 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 the, and the con artists and that. In a sense, they're, they are not paying attention to their intuition and therefore almost, in a sense, denying them their soul to be in touch with their soul. And what do you think about that, Jeffrey, about people that deny listening to their intuition? I would say so. I would say so. You know, Carl Jung talked about modern man in search of a soul. It's a, we live in a culture that, to a large degree, is, is denying the soul. Although I have to say we've turned the corner. That culture is, is dying away right now. We're, we're in the dawn of another age, and there are the traditionalists trying to hold everything back, but more and more people are moving into the future-oriented, forward-thinking camp. And we all know that Einstein spoke of mysticism and he spoke of intuition. And when you read his biography, what, what you learn is that his theory of relativity came to him in a flash, in a moment. And then he spent the next 10 years working out the details. And that's the way great creative breakthroughs are made. That's the way they come through. Intuition works instantly. Then you have to do your homework to, to back it up, to support it. But it suggests that, that if we understood the depths of the human mind, we would realize that it is far more powerful, far more comprehensive and wide-reaching than we normally give it credit for being, than we normally give ourselves credit for being. You know, the journey into the self ultimately is, I would say it's the journey into God. By listening to this program, you've already begun the journey to better understanding and developing your intuition. Tune in next time, as there's always something new to learn on Ariel Talk Time. If you're a professional lifestyle consultant looking to expand your brand, gain more recognition, or to be featured with an exceptional group of inspiring professionals, join Ariel. Visit Ariel.com.